Hello and welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tivey, editor of Palladium Magazine. Jonah, our editor-in-chief, has been stuffed in a closet somewhere, So, uh, and we lost Ash somewhere in the cold wastes of Canada, so I'm in charge now. Today we have a very special guest, Nick Pinkston, founder of Plethora, a rapid manufacturing company in San Francisco. He's on to answer our questions, talk about manufacturing industry and what these things look like in the future. So Nick, welcome to the show. Yeah, good to be on. I'm, uh, I'm super excited to be on. I've been uh, a fan of the magazine since I had the paper version um, early right, on. Yes. With like yeah, the binding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was at, at our, <laughs> our first Palladium party, at the launch party. We had a very limited edition yes, yes. paper version of the first articles. <laughs> and that, that has, I guess, become something of a collector's item. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we always have a question of the week. This week, the question is, if you could only use one social media platform forever, <laughs> what would it be? But email doesn't count. Email's too easy of an answer. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I think it would be Twitter, for obvious reasons, or possibly Urbit. I'm pretty <laughs> bullish on Urbit. <laughs> nice, nice. And if Ur- Urbit could be the future of social media. And then, so that's like a the big hedge answer. That's for me. What yeah, no, nice. Answer? It's funny. I feel like I'm like aspirationally want to say Twitter, but I just end up on Facebook all the time. Oh man. I have these like private Facebook groups that are actually awesome. Oh, really? And one of the things about Twitter is like, you can't say everything on Twitter. Um, right. Or you piss everyone off or something. Yeah, so it's yeah, like, yeah. I really like these private Facebook groups. I've been trying to be like, shit, instead of having these like screeds in Facebook that no one will see but 20 people, um, I'm trying to actually like, actually, you know how we found this sort of topic was actually on Twitter when I put right. my first big tweet storm out there yeah, yeah, and I got a good great, reception. Great tweet storm. Yeah. And, um, and so I think I'm trying to get more on Twitter actually just because there's so many more interesting people to engage mm-hmm. with, you know? Yeah. I have a Facebook, but I really don't use it. And, and that's partially that's deliberate. I, I just, <laughs> Facebook doesn't feel right. But that's Twitter, right. I like Twitter. Twitter is, is where a lot of important conversations yeah. happen. It's, it's really the public forum. That's, that's why Totally. So I think it's great. Totally. Anyways, let's let's move on to more interesting topics like palladium stuff. Um, so usually we talk about our recent articles and, you know, we've been publishing some interesting stuff, notably the octopus article. I think it's a very important topic that we'll have to dig into in uh, more depth at some time. But uh, Nick is even more interesting than that. So we'll focus on him. So let's get started. Uh, Nick, I've got a few questions to get us started, and then we'll take it where it leads us. So first of all, can you explain your company, Plethora? Sure. Yeah, I mean, essentially the point of Plethora, like our mission, is to make it very easy to go from an idea in your brain to shipping product at scale. Yeah. And so there's sort of two big pieces of this. So, you know, we're making hardware products, anything from a self-driving car to an AR headset, like all different stuff in between. So we've done... I mean, I can't name the companies, but basically the biggest tech companies on earth all the way down to like people in their garage making some new stuff. And so there's two big pieces of this and we draw a lot from software analogies. So in the same way that in software you like type code, you debug it, then you deploy it to a system, it compiles and then it runs. We take all of those things and made like factory and engineering versions of them. Yeah, I I looked at some of your talk notes. Oh, yeah. And and that that was good. Definitely, I saw that emphasis on the software kind of methodology where it's focused on tight iteration. Exactly. Debugging, um, just like very quickly, fast feedback, like the ability to just um, 
get your parts quickly and also get information about how it's going to work yep. even before you get it. Totally. I mean, so one of the things I look at is like engineering metabolism. Right. So like if you think about like CS, so computer science, it's like as fast as you can type and hit enter, the code evaluates and you know if it works. Right. That cycle, um, one, you don't get infinite of them. So it's like in CS, it's like as much as you can think. Like that's why yeah. we're so into agile and all these team methodologies. Yeah. Because the team is actually the unit of work that's the hardest. In yeah. manufacturing, it's in a Gantt chart mentality. So right. it's like you're going to design a bunch of stuff and that's going to take a while, yeah. but then the execution of the manufacturing does too. So that like design, build, test loop is like a week or a month or a year or whatever your complexity level is. And yeah. so what Plethora looked at is like, okay, what are the major issues in that? And so the overall goal is if I can make a thing faster than you can design it, then you're now the bottleneck. And we want people to be the bottleneck because then we can make better teams. We yeah, can augment we can better engineering. Exactly. So like at first we just looked at like, how can we make a better compiler that will take a 3D model and then put it through a factory and turn it into a real thing? Yeah, so I remember, so I used to work in engineering R&D. We, okay. we were building fuel cells. So nice. I have some familiarity with this process. I remember making out the Gantt charts. It's like, all right, <laughs> next six weeks, I'm focusing on this yeah. prototype that will test this concept that will go into the final product. Sure. And um, yeah, the bottleneck really was a lot of the time, like, you, you know, you can, get up a, a model relatively quickly, you know, as fast as you can think, basically, mm -hmm. um, in, in a CAD program, but then you have to produce engineering drawings, you have to send sure. it out to, the, to the, the manufacturing guys, they take a while to get it back to you, it costs a whole bunch, yep. and so that really drags out your, your iteration times, and so I was always, I spent a lot of my time thinking about, like, alright, exactly which tests do we have to do, Yeah. And, and really having to plan that process out, whereas in software, I've also exactly. done some, some software stuff, it's just, like you say, you, you have an idea, you figure out how it's going to work, you type it in, you compile, you see if it works, you write some tests for it, if you're up to that, if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and it, it's it's much faster and it's much more focused on the thinking rather than having to plan out this material yes. process. Yeah, and I think that actually it mirrors the creative process more. Yeah. Like you actually are able to like, because you when you're in a, such a complex system, you actually can't deterministically know everything. So in that case, iteration is the only way you can you can actually explore a complex system. So your iteration time is like the unit of which your innovation can be. Yeah, and and even if actually this is something that I was thinking about in in thinking about how to how to prepare for this, even if in the long term something's going to end up being simple and well characterized mm -hmm. and like with with mature technology such that you can just design it all up front at the time that it's innovation, the physics is uncharacterized. Yeah. Often you're dealing with new phenomena, you're dealing with new technologies and designs, you don't know how they behave, you don't know what the optimal sure. thing is, you haven't reduced it to the simplest possible form. So you really are dealing with this complex system that you don't fully understand. And, that's and so the, you have to do it empirically. And that actually, so this is, you're talking about the complex system of the product space, yeah. but there's also the, like, the market space. Right. So yeah. like, you're trying to make a thing that succeeds in the market, and so it might physically work, but it might suck in people's minds. Right. So like, to me, like, iteration is always like, sort of reacting to what market space actually looks like. Mm -hmm. And so we actually, you that's know, um, in, uh, in John Boyd, right, they talk about like, these cycles of the OODA loop, so, yeah. you know, the observe, orient, decide, act loop. And you yeah. want to be inside the loop of your competition, like going faster. So, like the market loop, you have to be inside too, so you can react faster than the market is moving, mm -hmm. but also your competitors. So, yeah. if you want to outcompete your competition by engineering, you have to figure out how to get your iterations faster and how you learn better in order to do that. Yeah. Um, so, so, you guys are aimed at basically shortening that OODA loop in, yeah. in hardware manufacturing. Exactly. And really, like, 
that's what we've done right now is like one percent of the overall vision. So like there are that's other awesome. companies that I'm going to start yeah. that are also working on their stuff. So this is my like third company in the space, and each one of them keeps getting like more and more um, broad in its application. Great. But I think that the main issue is that the engineering process has evolved. Um, with like basically in service of the tools being slow in a certain way, it's not actually um, thought of how do we make a better engineering process to do this and then make tools for itself. And one of the issues is is the tools are so damn hard to make. Like all of CAD software was developed by like you know military and huge corporations to serve their interests, which back in the day were giant machines that needed Gantt charts and we didn't have the kind of stuff to keep track of that. So CAD was made a certain way, and computing power wasn't even enough to do any more than that. So yeah, this is know. this is something I've thought about in my various past lives and hobby projects. Uh, I've noticed like. In CAD software, you often have this notion of the sketch where you can yes. just like sketch out a bunch of geometry, you put constraints on it, and yep. it just like solves the constraints and makes it whatever yeah. shape it should be. Yeah, in a small yeah, way. Sometimes yeah. it doesn't quite do it, but but sometimes but for the most part, it just kind of works. Mm -hmm. And thinking about that process abstracted out to a much larger set of yep. like engineering domains. So rather than just geometry, what if you could do that with equations and exactly. systems and all this mm -hmm. like and that was something that really fascinated me for a long time was the fact that like that would really accelerate the engineering design process at the sort of design calculations level sure and there wasn't really good software to do it any software yeah yeah and and so that was something that you know that's something i imagined could be massively improved but like like you said in your your big tweet storm these cad software is actually very high investment yeah. to get a bunch of people to actually figure out the algorithms that totally that sort that out and write it out and build a good user interface for yeah. it and all that stuff. There's another interesting thing with the CAD software is the CAD software is used by people who cannot make the CAD software. So yeah. there's actually an open source kernel that was basically a company that went bankrupt and became Open Cascade. Right. Um, okay. And that was never able to be made into real CAD. And my theory here is that like unlike say, you know, Apache or one of the like classic code bases that was open source, right. people who use Apache can improve Apache. Yeah, People yeah. who use, you know, CAD software can't write CAD software. Yeah, they're not going to write patches for it. They're yeah. not going to be like, oh, actually, I need this feature, so I'll just code exactly. that up, right? Yeah. So, like, you know, even having the open source community wanting to do this, um, and everyone wants this, it just isn't going to happen. You need, like, a large concentration of people who have, like, PhDs in mathematics all coordinated very closely to make good CAD software. Right. You know, and that's so why there's only two kernels that exist now, basically. Right. So it's, it's inherently kind of the cathedral model rather than the yeah. SAR. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that's okay. So, so you're looking at basically like you're talking about this much larger vision where you're starting to look at problems like that, but you're starting with this quickening the iteration. Loop yeah, stuff. totally. And like, how do we, you know, so I had a company previous to this where I was mm -hmm. actually making software that would just make the quoting part easier. And then we found right. vendors who were the factories to make stuff. Right. But the issue is when we looked at the time savings, like, yeah, the quoting process is annoying and finding good vendors is long. Mm -hmm. But once you get a vendor relationship, it's okay. But the vendor is still the big problem. And it's because that manufacturing, even though it's like, quote unquote, automated, yeah. like, you know, CNC machining technology is what we use. And that's, you know, already very widespread. And, you know, yeah, for, yeah. for people listening who don't know about that, like, it's basically like you take a block of metal or plastic and you use the thing that looks like a drill bit to cut away the stuff you don't want. And what's left is the part. 
So yeah. that's been around since and, like the 50s. And, and the, the path, the tool path can be generated automatically by the Not software. really, not really. Not so really. In, in limited cases, that's true, but actually okay. the hard part is actually that the 3D model in CAD, it will take you a day to get the, the tool paths, the code that the machine uses right. to actually work. And it's even beyond the tool path, it's actually how you hold it and all these other different things that right. like what a machinist does. Mm -hmm. So our like compiler system, that's its whole point, is how do you look at a part, characterize its geometry, figure out what machine should be in there, what cutting tool should be in there, what work holding, you know, it's this whole thing. So you guys are figuring out how to automate that process. Yeah. I, I didn't have a lot of visibility into that when I was Sure, sure. It was just like, yeah, we send off the step file and the drawings yes. to, the, yeah, exactly. to the guys at the CAD shop and they figure it out somehow. And, and that's what it should it be, back. you know. <laughs> right. um, the only thing you run into is if you just throw a 3D file there, um, you know, often people don't know the limitations of either the process or the particular shop that you have. Maybe they don't have a machine big enough or a drill yeah. long enough. And that was know. that was something I remember I would do a lot of thinking about, okay, how is this actually going to going to be done. Like yeah, when I was designing sure. the part, it's like, all right, make sure all the corners are, are round so that you don't, yes, have exactly. to, you don't have like stress concentrations. You can actually get a tool in there, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, but some people would, would sort of not do that right or, or they don't necessarily know that intuitively and, and it, it, it doesn't totally and then the thing is is like how would you even know what the tooling they had was so right. you get into weird things where like the thing holding the drill bit is crashing into the part before the drill fully makes the hole so right. like you actually need to know this so what we did is we made a system before the compiler which is sort of um, you know, analogous to a debugger which knows every single limitation of our thing so every drill bit is in there Mm -hmm. Every machine limitation is in there and all the limitations of physics are in there. So like when you're designing, we'll say like, hey, that hole is not accessible to this cutting tool. So yada, yada, here's how to fix it. So that's really the two part thing we do is in, in real time, you can debug your component as you're making it. And then you can say bye. And then the compiler spins up and makes one. And, and that's really the whole core of it is being able to go through the whole process quickly. And so your system works by um, embedding into the CAD software with, with right. your piece of software so yep. you can watch what they're doing and give feedback exactly. in real time. Exactly, yeah. So they're just hitting like analyze in like a second, it gives you results yeah. and then you can adjust. Yeah, cool. And, and so this, I guess, leads us to um, once you have this process where the process that the engineer is interfacing with is no longer them having to think about the individual machines, then you guys get to think about the individual machines and design mm -hmm. better machines. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately, I mean, you know, it's funny. I mean, this is just one process of CNC manufacturing, right? So right. if you look at, there's a great book called, um, what is it? Uh, manufacturing Processes for Design Professionals. Beautiful mm -hmm. book. has like a hundred different manufacturing processes. Right. Every one of those will need to be automated. Right. Um, you know, and maybe like 10 to 20 or how like most of the stuff you would do in at least prototyping might be made. So mm -hmm. it's a huge thing. Like I, I'm actually an advisor of a company called Path Robotics, which is sort of like the plethora of welding. Okay, and cool. so, you know, they're, they're working on, you know, analogous things in the welding industry, um, which I also find very exciting. So there's just, to me, there's a fundamental limit of not many people know about manufacturing and start startups. Yeah. So there's actually a heavy founder limitation for this. And because I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and like my grandfather was a machinist and my right, dad right. was a production manager and I just grew up around factories, I knew those problems, but right. no one else cares. Yeah, this yeah. Is no, this is, this is something like when I was thinking about products in this space, like one of the things I realized is there are very few people who are simultaneously familiar with the atoms side and the bits side. Yeah. Right. And, and these things really do need to come together to get kind of progress in this field. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so um, you mentioned the problem of machine tools are hard to make. Yeah. Uh, and this is what your 
recent tweet storm was about basically Samo asked this question publicly because he's been looking into kind of industrial <laughs> stuff yeah um he uh Samuel Buria um we can we can provide a link um he asked a question on twitter what's going on with the concentration of machine tools why are they only built in germany and japan and, and like what happened to the american industry yeah what happened to the british industry etc and then so you went in with a bunch of history and the topic and discussion of you know, the, the big capital investments um, that are required to do that kind of stuff and and sort of where it all went, what all happened. Sure. So if you could go over yeah, sure. your thesis in that area, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, to kind of run through it, you know, it was sort of like looking at like, so what is, even is a machine tool, right? So like, it's interesting, there's this thing called the product space that I really love and it actually looks back at like, what are the core industries to make everything? Uh -huh. And so, like, you know, most things that you encounter with are, uh, are you know, made using some molded processes or something. And molds right. are cut using machine tools, which is what we're talking about. Yeah, and so um, machine tools here are, like, lathes and, and CNC mills. Technically, it's anything that's a machine that does work. So right. machining is the thing that are lathes and mills yeah, yeah. that we had to invent. And basically, it allows us to make precision parts, which yes. before there were like only blacksmiths and you either pounded shit with a hammer um, or you poured molten metal into a mold. And then yeah. after that you would file it. And so you used to like, you know, for old guns, for instance, some of the most mechanical things, you would hand fit things with a file and right. you would basically you'd, you'd achieve like file a little bit, check it, file it, check it. And so each yeah, one was extremely made uniquely. expensive. Yeah, extremely expensive. And you couldn't have repeatability, so you couldn't make interchangeable parts. So this whole yeah. thing we heard of interchangeable parts, that yeah. was, um, you know, you had to have precision and consistency to do that. So machine tools and that, are that tools was that are repeatable. That was a big thing in the 19th century, basically. Like the, and before, the, yeah. the replaceable parts was this like holy grail yes. in manufacturing. And this, I, I don't know the history very well in here, but there was sort of the American system of manufacturing, which yeah. I think was related to that. But it was like this big effort. It wasn't well, it's to, interesting. to get there. It and wasn't just something that happened accidentally, basically. Yeah, it was certainly deliberate. And a lot of people tried. And actually, the American system, and I forget the guy who was the one who invented this, actually was a fraud. And the rifles never did have interchangeable parts from his system yeah so the government ordered a bunch of muskets or something and um he made like 10 that you could do this with right. but it was extremely painstaking and manual it was not using right because he process. was manually like fitting them exactly. across each other yeah and so, yeah yeah um so that's what happened but yeah over time like you know big thesis of this is that like a lot of um you know, government investment vis-a-vis -vis military usually investment in the american yeah. case was put into this to make interchangeable parts for war mm -hmm. um it, various implements in that way and then it leaked down to everything else so yeah, you know um, as is often the case i mean like basically some things need really high capital investment the biggest entities around are states yeah so they're going to be able to make the biggest investments states in terms of their engineering needs the largest engineering need of a state is basically war yeah so yeah a lot of stuff comes from war yeah i mean the first production system that made anything like interchangeable parts actually i believe was in florence maybe venice and it was the um one of the arms production systems of maybe the 1400s right. was was kind of mass producing muskets in a certain consistent way and then there were block and tackle systems in the 1600s in england where there were purpose-built machine tools just to cut the pulley assemblies for big ships right. um, and then we got into muskets and stuff um, yeah, in, the, yeah. in the Americas but you know the, we kind of fast forwarded through the creation of machine tools and precision which was like how you take it by hand and use a file to you know there's yeah. all these ways of, of making but once you have accurate machine tools the issue was you needed very good machinists 
to do yeah. it, right? So you could even say that like the um, you know public education system focuses on calculus at the end because you're supposed to make steam engines and machine tools, and you knew that you need to know that math so you can make the mechanisms to right. do that, yeah, yeah. you know. And so we needed people who could run those machines, and so that's mm -hmm. why high school kind of did that. Yeah, of course, these things have kind of drifted apart since then, and yeah, of course, no longer really. Yeah, calculus almost like a vestigial math yeah. that we learned that yeah. is like maybe not even more applicable to most people's lives than it yeah. was uh, previously. But, you know, then afterwards, like I think World War II was something where you can look at like really interesting things in capital investment, right? So, right. you know, there was a kind of conversation on Twitter of like, what was the effect of so much money being thrown at machine tools in World War II? And mm -hmm. yeah, I actually, I believe it's in the rise and fall of American growth. Um, that book yeah. um, has this chart that shows like the modernization, like how old are the machine tools over time. And in World War II, you see like the youth of the machine tools go way up. So far, fewer and fewer, um, uh, you know, more and more machine tools are new basically because yeah. of the war and they have higher productivity. And so some people have linked that to the higher post-war productivity. Oh, because all the stuff got replaced yeah. as part of a big capital investment. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we just bought more new stuff. But, um, you know, right after that, the Air Force is trying to beat the Russians in the airplane game. And so, mm -hmm. you know, Operation Paperclip took a bunch of engineers and shit from the Germans. Yeah. Um, and so one yeah, of those things... Yeah, the moon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Von Braun, famously. Yeah. Um, one of the guys, I don't know who it was, but there were people who built these giant heavy presses in the heavy press program. Yeah, you mentioned that in the tweet. Yeah, and so like they have a bunch of them that are still in Cleveland from like the 50s or something right. that were made, basically every airplane commercially you've flown in has parts from these things in Cleveland. They make giant aluminum forgings, basically. And, and that's for like wing spars or something? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's like the big parts that are made all at once and they cost like a million bucks each yeah, and crazy. Boeing got really good at working on them once they made them. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> but that was direct government knowledge that had to do that. And then to make the dies for those things, it was then very complicated geometry, and so the Air Force asked MIT, and then there's right. this kind of guy who went around famously like trying to get up support for computer-controlled machine tools, and so MIT right. and this guy went together and made the first computer-controlled machine tool, which the program the was... CNC machine. Exactly, yeah. yeah, or what they called NC machine at the time, because it was just right. numerical, numerical control. control. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's kind of funny, there's a good book that's called Forces of Production, mm -hmm. which talks about, it's called A Social History of Industrial Automation, and it talks about the race between numerical control, which was programming, which he's kind of a Marxist, and he talks about like, oh, well, the engineers would program, and then operators would execute those programs on the machine tools, right. not knowing how to do their own code, which, right. you know, he kind of paints as a dehumanizing thing, and right. there was a, there was a um, sort of another approach people took called the playback system, where you would have a manual machine tool and a professional, you know, kind of union machinist would right. make the part once and then you could put it on like repeat mode right, um, right you know interestingly any error that guy would have put into the part would be maintained through every piece so it wasn't yeah. as repeatable yeah well i remember that reminds me of uh, kurt vonnegut's novel player piano okay it's, it's, it's pretty obscure but it it people uh, tell me to read it all the time actually yeah, no, it's, it's about the automation <laughs> of, of manufacturing and, huh. and like it, and, you know, all its social effects and everyone gets unemployed and blah, blah, blah. Okay. I, I, I don't think the, the sociology was that great from that <laughs> one, but it, it had that system where things were played back by tape. Oh, interesting. To, to run the machines. Yeah. And, like, the NC stuff was on tape as yeah. well. Um, you know, it just was who was generating that tape. Was it, right. um, you know, was it an engineer or was it a guy? In yeah, the it was a recorded tape. I and weirdly, these ideas kind of came together in what's called CAM software now. So like the, I believe the Air Force again yeah. made a system where instead of p programming like individual lines of code, like that looks like just regular like programming language, yeah. you could just click on stuff in 3D to program it. And that's known as CAM software. 
Yeah, and that's how we generate the, the CNC G code, I guess yes. you call it. Usually. Yeah. People used to just program in G code directly. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I know. I know. And people actually, you know, it's crazy. Even today, 70% of G code is generated by um, people who are just right next to the machine. Really? And the reason for that is most parts are actually just cleaning up castings. So like if you think about like an engine block, it comes out of a, of a, a foundry as a rough near net shape, as they would call it, piece. Yeah. And then you have to like bore the cylinders and tap the holes. And so you really just have to know what the, you know, bore to bore dimensions are. And you yeah, just yeah. kind of program that into the machine and people kind of guess and check their way to it working a lot of the times. Um, yeah, that's kind of crazy. That's really neat. Yeah. Okay. So then that's sort of the big capital investments in the 50s. And then in the 70s and 80s, we had a lot of offshoring and... Japan and Germany ended up with these industries. Yeah. And so it's interesting. So one of the things that we, we found sort of in that tweet thread is that like the, I believe it was in the 60s or 70s, the top 10 automated machine tools, CNC machine tool companies were American. Right. So the entire industry was here and we had invented it. Right. And then by the 80s, Fanuc, a single company in Japan, had 50% market share in machine tools globally. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, so what that's happened? That's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's crazy. And Fanuc, like actually, they, they make basically the controller or the brain for 70% of the machine tools today. Wow. And they don't make the tool necessarily, but they make the hard part, the thing that right. converts the computer stuff into motor movements. And they also make the motors and the sort of linear motion systems yeah. that are the hard okay. bits. That's the tricky part because there's backlash in the system, right? Like you can't just get the motor to tick a certain amount of steps yeah. and have an easy translation between that and like actual motions. There's so because much. Because there's like slop in the ball bearings or slop sure. in the gears there's all kinds of stuff and, and there's and it's crazy so like the, the people who actually make the machine tools um, just buy everything from Fanuc basically or people like Fanuc right. and so you know they're basically mechanical guys or just machinists mm-hmm. and they are buying off the shelf components and they know how to make metal and even that is crazy because the metal actually is um, you know everything is actually jello in the world nothing is hard so yeah. you might think cast iron is hard, but actually it's drooping all the time. Like at Plethora, we're on, on the water and, yeah. you know, there are actually times when like the tide comes in or something and the machines go out because the concrete is moving slightly and the machines move slightly and that means they go slightly out of square or this oh, kind of man. stuff. So it's like actually crazy how much you yeah, have to do. Yeah, yeah. So there's all this kind of compute, computational stuff you do to compensate for that. Right. Um, It's crazy. And so, you know, one of the questions was, was like, why did America stop investing in machine tool companies? And my, my, like, you know, I don't know if I've ever seen an actual study that says, but my like anecdotal thing here is like, one, it was cool in like the fifties and sixties to do manufacturing. And it was Mm -hmm. a big competitive advantage to the country. And we had an industrial policy such that we kind of like invested a lot up front. These initial companies were actually profitable because like there was a lot of innovation to do. And so people just hadn't commoditized it yet. Yeah. By the time you got to the seventies and eighties, everyone else like Japan was like, we really want some of this stuff. And so they made their own industrial policies that made these companies and then supported them mm-hmm. with like low interest loans and all this stuff to make them that way. Um, you know, I think it was Fujitsu in, yeah. um, in the story that actually was the one who, um, you know, made Fanuc actually made internally. Yeah. Um, and so that's cause probably Fujitsu is getting a bunch of money from the government too. Cause it's one of the like Heretsus or whatever that are, um, you know, yeah. one of the big yeah. And so there's, so I've looked at like these economic transitions over the latter half of the 20th century before, and one of the big things that strikes me is how much of an economic transition there was in about 1973. Well, that's and the I, classic productivity wage um, uh, thing on the yeah. chart. Yeah. Right? So, so that's the one of the things that 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 happens there is is productivity continues to go up, but the wages don't. Yes. After 73. Yep. You get the oil shock. You get the gold standard. Sure. You know, you get Watergate. There's there's actually like on many graphs, like about yeah. half of graphs that you might expect to be correlated with the health of society or the health of the totally, economy yeah. or whatever. There's something going on in 1973. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I've always wondered, like, what happened there? Sure. And, and so one of the things that, you know, anecdotally looking through this stuff, you get things like, you know, Funk Brown retires around then. <laughs> um, Kelly from, uh, what's, his, what's his first name? The Which Kelly? Skunkworks guy. Oh, yeah, I forget his name, but yeah, okay, yeah. interesting. Um, he retires around then. Uh, Mueller from, from NASA also retires mm-hmm. around then. Um, and, and basically what you have is like the entire generation that was educated before the war yeah. and was active through the war huh. retires in the early 70s. Yeah. And then you simultaneously have a bunch of political upheaval, mm-hmm. changes in how the economy is run, etc. So like something changed there basically and it yeah. changed how we do the industrial policy basically yeah yeah it's interesting and also like i wonder like what the bureaucracies were doing at that time like it feels like yeah. post-world war ii we had really good institutions and like people were like ambitious yeah. and you could like actually there's a great book called american genesis which mm-hmm. actually is like the industrial history from 1870 to 1970 and i think it's funny that it's bounded by 1970 mm-hmm. um and you know throughout that book there's like kind of two big periods of like say fdr time yeah. and like maybe like 18 I don't know, like not just the FDR, but like this whole thing of like when industrial, like the second industrial revolution with like trains and railroads and everything happened. And there were people who were like bureaucratic entrepreneurs mm-hmm. who were building out pieces of the federal bureaucracy when yeah. you could actually have like, here's a person, hire people and do it. And it was almost like a startup where yeah, like, yeah. you just can't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Like, so that's yeah. the FDR regime. And then after the war as well, like, yes. you know, they're building out the CIA, they're yeah, building NASA. out all, all these, yeah, NASA, they're building yeah. out all these big parts of the government. And it's like, you know, in, in, um, it, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of founding going on founding yes, of institutions totally. but then a lot of the guys who did that retire in yeah. the early 70s and I guess they failed the succession problem they, and ossification they, might be just the natural yeah, course or, of things yeah <laughs> whatever it was the energy ran out yeah and, and now we're kind of cruising yeah also like what's interesting I've been thinking about this a lot is like the when you have such a run like I think right now China's in a run where it's like you know there's the development curve and it's like an S curve and they're in like the steepest part of the S curve or just got through the steepest part and at that time we just did too it was like from you know 1870 that was like our steepest part of the S curve and it's easy to be an optimist when your material conditions are changing all the time for the better you're like yeah of course we'll make future investments like it was we just did that for 50 years and it was all great you know and I think at a certain certain point you know like the maybe it was the 1964 world's fair or something was like yeah. you know like gm had the like flying cars exhibit and everything. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, people yeah. were very optimistic and thought the future was definitely gonna yeah, be well, like moon if bases you, or something if you project it out as an exponential curve yeah yeah. Like, yeah of course <laughs> you have moon bases and flying cars in, yeah in the yeah thousands, right? and like i don't think there's any material reason why we couldn't have done that actually yeah um like maybe maybe it wouldn't have been quite as fast but I mean, um, it, it, we went out of optimism it seemed like no one's figured out how to make a flying car work just like energy wise well i mean it depends i mean you know we built several flying cars for different people at plethora and uh, various states of working mm-hmm. um you know it's interesting some of them exist they're like yeah they don't have a lot of range yet yeah i mean even if you're running out on gas there's it's a lot of gas <laughs> yeah totally totally and i, I guess but I guess, you know, in the 50s and 60s, they were also doing things like nuclear reactors in your car. Yeah. And stuff like that. So, you know, who knows yeah, our RTG would just fly forever. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the energy density is on that one. It's not quite good enough. Yes. Yes. But, <laughs> I'm from voltaics with tritium batteries. But. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess the trouble with tritium is you can't turn it off. Anyways, we're getting yeah, too yeah. deep in that stuff. But... Um, um, yeah, so, so we lost all this stuff in the, in the seventies and eighties somehow through, 
And there's another piece here, actually. Okay, go on. So, like, I think not only did, like, the, you know, there was this thing that came out in the 50s and 60s where it was still innovative. Like, machine tools were, like, the web or something. Right. You know? And so there's another thing, which is I think is that, like, the, um, you know, the capitalist system, after a while, once it's commoditized and your profits go to nothing, like, the government wasn't propping up the actual end-state companies. Because, like, that's not, like, what America, at least maybe typically wants to do, is support a bunch of companies. Yeah. Whereas, actually, like, in Japan, they're cool with that. Or say France with like like Citroen and right. Peugeot, they may never actually exist without government help because the unions vote the money because of so many jobs or something. Like yeah, I, yeah, I assume, yeah. like I don't have the deep history on that, but I kind of feel like that's what those companies are actually doing. Sort of like when Thatcher privatized stuff, and then all those British car companies like British Leyland yeah, and Enfield, right. that's when that all they all appeared. died because those yeah. companies were worthless, um, and it was probably good they got turned out. So the question is like, did we actually lose anything by American machine tools going out? Yeah. Um, and I think that it's interesting to think about what we did lose because in a way we did lose a lot of people that knew all that stuff. Yeah. And, we lost a lot of capital and capability Yeah, that might be useful at some point. And but what's interesting though, is that we today can buy, you know, there are 50 vendors of the same type of machine tool. I go to the show called uh, IMTS in Chicago every right. other year. And it's basically like a bunch of clones of everything. Like everyone has the compact car, everyone has the SUV version yeah, yeah, of these yeah, yeah, machines. Yeah, yeah. yeah the cars all look the same. And yeah. I've seen people comment on totally. this as we sort of optimize cars closer and closer to the fundamental limits. It's like they're all yeah. egg shaped. They're all, you know, and imagine, different variations. And imagine with, with Fanuc, and there's yeah. actually, it's Fanuc, Siemens, there's only a few different people who make all the yeah. different electronics and motors for these things. So, of course, they'd all be the same if all the fundamental components are all from the same people. Right. You know, you're building the same car with the same engine, basically, yeah. every time. Um, so, like, in many ways, maybe we didn't actually lose that much from those businesses that died. But yeah. you could say... Well, that, economically, no. I yeah. So the knowledge of it is like, okay, so this is one type of machine tool. We had to move on to other types of machine tools. And the one we did move on to, interestingly, was semiconductors. So, right. you know, we still have LAM research, applied materials. There's a bunch of these companies that are the leaders, top five companies. Mm -hmm. I, think, oh, I think four of the five are U.S. companies that make machine tools to make chips. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really interesting. Although what we've increasingly lost to say people like Taiwan Semiconductor are the people who do the actual manufacturing of the chips. So right. we're still making the fancy equipment, um, but we're losing it, um, you know, the actual production to like Taiwan Semi. Um, yeah. Which is interesting. So the people who are really good at setting up the chip fabs are maybe over there now. Yeah. And this is something where like, you know, like the classic economic arguments for free trade. It's like, oh, well, let whoever wants to do it, do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And let whoever is good at it, do it. And that's more prosperous for everyone. But once you start to get into the geopolitics and the competition between yeah, spheres yeah. of influence... That's when it matters where the yeah. stuff is. And, and China has been really, you know, really interesting in how they've done very aggressive policy. Like, I yeah. don't know if you've saw, like, the sort of prisoner's dilemma that was not passed by the high-speed trains of China. So, like, basically, it was like, I think it's um, uh, someone in France, I forget who, but one of the people in France, it was um, Bombardier of Canada, mm -hmm. it was Siemens, and it was whoever from Japan who does theirs. So, so there were, like, five companies or four companies or something yeah. that have all the high-speed trains. And so China yeah. basically played them all against each other, and they're like, okay, we're going to give the contract to whoever basically moves the plant over here and does slowly import substitution of Chinese um, parts. And eventually, they just figured out how to make the trains and just made them in China. Yeah. Um, and so there was no coordination among, say, like, you know, State Department of each of those respective countries to say, hey, we have an ability to coordinate here and not yeah. give up this technology to what will be the biggest high-speed rail user in the world, you know, and there could have been a lot of transfer of wealth from our technical know-how, yeah, and they just took it, um, which is really smart. I mean, you know, it totally yeah, yeah, no, They're definitely, the Chinese are very shrewd these days. They're, they're definitely playing the game well, and, and I think 
until quite recently, no one was worried about that. It's insane. It's, it's weird because I remember asking people this, like, you know, I mean, 10 years ago, yeah. like, it seems like these graphs in China are, are going to yield something really crazy. Right. And I, I must, I was just thinking, like, oh, I must be missing something. I'm not, like, some scholar of this, you right. know? Um, yeah, well, that's the thing. Is no, yeah. one had, no one had the confidence in it. And I you know. couldn't decisively demonstrate mm -hmm. it, right? But then, you know, 2018, uh, last totally. few years, basically, people have started to realize, okay, yeah. they're actually, they're, they're way ahead of us on a bunch of dimensions at least in the, in the projection, right? And then of trade and like how they do it. Certainly. Yeah. And, and in government capacity and all these things. And they're like, they are playing a game that we are not even playing. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's starting to get people worried. So the alarms are starting to sound. So totally. People are paying attention maybe a bit more to that. Yeah. But to, to respond to that requires like, you know, to get the state departments of the various countries yeah, yeah, to yeah. like cooperate and, you know, hold on to technology. Surely. Like that is itself an institutional task that, yep, that we may not be up to yet. Yeah, and I mean, take a while to spin I, up. I think we were up to it. This is the thing: is like we've actually regressed from the '60s when the right. U.S. was used the clear to be up Western to it. dominance. But, but if you're yeah. not using a capability, it kind of fully atrophies away. It goes we away. also voted it away in some ways. Like right. you know, there were actually so um, you know, I remember looking at this of like, where does the long-term planning of the U.S. government actually sit? Right. So, like, if you look at, like, the only one that's left is the Office of Net Assessment in the Pentagon, which has a 40-year time horizon. Okay. So, the Pentagon still does have long-term ability, but, um, you know, there was one in the State Department, there was one in Commerce. Those are both defunded. Interesting. Um, yeah, and actually, I believe, there, I don't know if this is true, but I had heard something about, like, Newt back in, you know, like, 90s or whatever, voted these out, and he had his own private organizations that did think tank stuff like this, because he's right. like a big nerd, and he wanted the money, too. That's, like, a cynical way of reading it. Yeah. Um, and then the congressional um, offices that used to be researchers apparently defunded, too. So what's oh, interesting yeah. is, like, you know, when I talked to my friend who's, like, deep into this, into the government, um, I was like, hey, where does this live? And he's like, oh, it doesn't. Like, there's there's a four-year cycle of presidents. Like, have fun, you know? Oh. Um, and so, you know, when you look at that, it's like, it doesn't seem like we have this long-term ability anymore outside of the military and it's interesting because like the military are the people weirdly who are the almost like still the best bureaucracy yeah, um, yeah. in a sense yeah you do see them still thinking long term like where yeah. is this all going like DARPA the only yeah. like effective like VC yeah. or whatever in the government yeah. is DARPA who actually has a really interesting model where the partners in effect the program managers can only stay between three to five years max and so they, you cannot get ossification in that system because everyone's oh, churning out so much. That was designed yeah. explicitly to do that. How do they keep um, institutional knowledge then in, in the thing? Yeah, it's interesting. So I don't know all the ins and outs of DARPA. I'm not even sure they're public. Um, I've been hosting some events with them actually um, mm. to try to better connect. Like it's crazy. Like there's so many people in Silicon Valley who are transhumanists, right? And so I had my friend uh, Justin, who's the head of the biotechnology office at DARPA. Yeah. He was out here, and so I hosted a thing at this uh, biotech incubator, um, Indie Bio, uh, yeah. in San Francisco. And you know, he gave a half-hour talk that was like brain-computer interfaces, like f flying drones through your mind, vaccines that make anything, um, you know, like can kill any disease. Like yeah. these things are working on where it's like this is the transhumanist shit like if you want to fund that shit the military is already doing that yeah like, yeah this is something you know, like a, a few years ago you know it's uh people are interested in all this futurism stuff i was in some futurism crowds yeah sure um and like the only sort of official anything that we could find looking at some of these big problems was the military it's like yeah. okay the military you know years ago had presentations on like where's ai going to take military yeah stuff? yeah where's this going to like how is this going to affect what sure. we're doing um, yeah, and, and, and so it's like, that's cool to see, but again, it's, it's just like this one part of government, then the yeah. rest of it should be thinking in this big way too. Surely. And this is, I mean, partially this is kind of what we're trying to do with Palladium, right? It's like, all right, 
the discourse has gotten focused on elections and short-term stuff and mm-hmm. infighting. We're not kind of taking the big picture, long-term, sure. where is it all going kind of stuff. And so what we're trying to do with Palladium is like, all right, what does the ruling class have to know about? How do we look at the world? Let's, let's build up uh, at least like a, a small culture here of people actually looking at these big questions and trying to think over that long term. Sure. And ideally we can help spark some of these changes that, that can create these longer term institutions. Sure. Um, yeah. So this is all like really interesting to us. Like, where's it all going? What does it all mean? How do you do this stuff? Totally. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, like, when I think about um, the interaction between the short-term and the long-term in this way, yeah. I think one of the issues is that, like, the like the people who are supposed to do the, all the think tanks, right, or yeah. you know, your Brookings and your Aspen, and these people yeah, that are, yeah. like, thinking about these things in the long-term, in a sense, like, my friend in the government was like, no, that's a think tank job, is to do long-term right. shit. We're here to just, like, pass laws that they, like, write for us. Yeah. Um, you know, basically. And so it's like, you know, the issue is, is that, like, we don't actually have good coordination, I think, on either side for long-term stuff. It's become yeah. very short-term and it does feel like maybe like the Republicans are better at it right now like the last big push for this was actually probably the installation of neoliberalism from Mont Pelerin mm-hmm. like Mont Pelerin is you're familiar with Mont Pelerin so it's go into that. yeah I mean for people who haven't realized like you know basically like a lot of philosophers like you know like your Hayek and Friedman and these guys kind of got together in like the I think it's like the 50s and even still happens today but it's not the you know the, yeah. the arch dudes of that era yeah. um, and they basically put together what we would call neoliberalism now yeah. and then there were people I think it was the DuPont brothers were like the people who actually bankrolled the whole thing and they were reacting to FDR right. and this whole thing and so they basically had like a very um uh like deliberate plan of like, okay, like we and, need to make the Cato in, Institute and, and that got Federalist with, Society, like, like with, all these with things. With like Reagan and Thatcher. Ultimately, yeah. Because remember, there's that Milton Friedman quote that says yeah. like, um, you know, you, you, what is it, you solve the problems of today with the ideas lying around. And yeah. you're basically always waiting for the crisis and then you pick up the ideas lying around. So our idea is to have, or our, our method is to have good ideas lying around. And if you look, there's a really good book called Invisible Hands, which tracks like this thing from like maybe the 30s when FDR was like the trigger for a lot of this backlash all the way to the 80s when it was like fully implemented. Right. Um, and so you can see like a lot of neoliberal policies did clear some of that. And like, you know, the, it's seemingly like the bureaucracy crystallized in a bad way. And Reagan was like, okay, big government's bad, blow that shit away. And then yeah. let the market do it. Maybe that was an overcorrection in some ways. Yeah. But, um, but it did blow away some sclerosis perhaps. It was a useful Yeah, cleanup. yeah. Like it, it was... Um... Yeah, it, it clears out some of the brush, even, if, exactly, it did, even yeah. if it didn't fully revitalize the system. Yeah, so now we have to react and revitalize. I mean, to me, there's yeah. just... Yeah, revitalization party. is really an important thing right yeah. now. And, and both parties, you know, the big parties, the Democrats and Republicans, are both like kind of in disarray right now. Fully, yeah. yeah like you got Trump, like Trump just completely blew up the Republican it's Party. Amazing. And yeah. like the Democrat Party is just like... It's never been there's, coherent. There's factions within it. It's, yeah. it's not not going anywhere. I mean, they are at least, I mean, you know, the, the whole Green New Deal, they're like kind of hearkening back to a FDR-esque let's do Yeah, which is thing. good, right? Like, yeah. let's, let's think about state capacity. Let's build up big yeah. visions and yeah. so on. But unfortunately, like, uh, the big visions they have are not... not. They're half-baked at this point. They're half-baked. Yeah. They're half-baked. I, and, and, yeah, it would, be, it would be nice to see some more fully-baked things. And that's, yeah. that's, like, why we're trying to kind of do what we're doing. Right? Of course. Understand these things. Have some of these good ideas sitting around of, like, how do we analyze this? How should a ruling class look at this? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so what more broadly, like I'm interested in like this, the state of manufacturing and industry and so on in America 
um, and like like where's it going right now like are we losing more or is there a resurgence coming or like is are we looking at a wider sphere beyond America sure or like like just I'd like to know your thoughts on that because you're right in it so yeah it's, it's interesting so I would say that even though the like sort of CNC stuff and all that traditional stuff has yeah. um, you know went to Japan and then mm -hmm. the actual assembly work went to China and yeah. whatnot, right? Um, it's interesting to see like where the new stuff is coming from. So right. in the thread actually, so I had CC'd a few of my friends who run like the most relevant 3D printing companies now. Mm -hmm. And so they were talking about, so this would be like your desktop metal working on 3D printing a metal, Formlabs, which has a very affordable 3D printer um, yeah. and so on. And so, you know, they were basically like, hey, like actually most of the interesting stuff is actually coming from America and it actually is from the same academic system. Both of them are in Boston. Mm -hmm. Boston is like kind of America's CAD capital. So right. like MIT has made, you know, a lot of robotic stuff, a lot of CAD stuff. And mm -hmm. so there's just a good talent pool. So we have very good human capital in that area. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in San Francisco, we have Carbon Robotics, which is, you know, very well funded and, and doing a totally different way of 3D mm -hmm. printing. So you can see like 3D printing in the machine side mm -hmm. is actually the technology is great. And it's like an American thing. Yeah. I mean, like 10 years ago, it was just like a bunch of nerds printing stuff out in ABS. And nowadays it's like 3D <laughs> printed rockets out of metal. Like they're doing high yeah. quality stuff. Yeah. It's interesting to see like, you know, so the first 3D printers were actually in the mid 80s. Right. And, um, you know, super early, you know, and yeah, then that's with the starch and, and so on. So that's, yeah, that's a Z Corp style. And so mm -hmm. that was one, there was stereolithography, which is a, a UV photopolymer where you like shoot right. a laser and it cures. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the FDM, which is like squirting, basically hot glue plastic yeah. and you build it up into the thing. And then hobbyists found that because some patents lapsed in like 2007 right. or something. Okay. That's what And then that. MakerBot came out. Yeah. I mean, it's funny cause I saw all this history cause like I know the MakerBot guys mm -hmm. and I was like building with one of the co-founders, these, you know, rep wraps before yeah. they had MakerBots, um, you know, it's so funny. But then that resurgence blew up and MakerBot was acquired and like nothing really came of a lot of those machines. Mm -hmm. And then it was like in the sort of the, the low of the hype cycle, you know, it was mm -hmm. like everyone hated 3D printing companies. And then out of the when ashes, that? that was probably like five years ago, I okay. would say. Yeah. So like MakerBot was acquired and nothing happened. All these ones that came out, nothing came of them. It really was because at a certain point it was like, cool, they're cheap now. You know, 3D printing is cheap. Yeah. Um, and so the, the real question was like, what new capabilities do you have for us? So the metal 3D printing, the like faster 3D printing of like carbon, the more affordable one of, of new processes, which is what Formlabs looks at of how do you democratize the old processes that are yeah. like a hundred thousand bucks or 500,000 bucks. Right. That's happening. And then on the software side, we're seeing also American companies like N Topology is mm -hmm. making CAD just for 3D printing because these new capabilities in 3D printing right. are, are limited by regular CAD systems that are really designed in the mid seventies. Yeah, um, and the CAD is designed all for for machining type stuff. It's like yeah. flat surfaces or like exactly. curved only one yeah, dimension or sheet metal. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like there's a couple, yeah. like there's probably like three or four major packages in CAD of the different manufacturing types. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is another one of those things that will probably be absorbed into CAD over the next five to 10 years. So that's on the, the cutting edge of American manufacturing. It still seems strong. Mm -hmm. It is still supported by our kind of like, you know, industry, university, government complex still seems to be pretty good in that. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so, that's but, good to know. And, yeah, and like actually the book that inspired me came out of MIT. It was called Fab by Neil Gershenfeld, who still leads the Center yeah. for Bits and Atoms, which is some of like the fundamental work. And they're working on programmable matter right now, very theoretically and somewhat applicationally. Um, you know, so like the cutting edge is there. I think the part that everyone sees is like, 
automobiles going offshore or, you know, this kind of yeah, stuff. And, and so it can steal and all these like burnout yeah. towns that used to be doing something totally. now aren't. Yeah. Totally. And like, I grew up, you know, north of Pittsburgh and like right. rusting was so everywhere. And like, you know, I think the major issue was like, I don't, I think that you want some industrial base for innovation. Like you, know, you look at like Hyundai, the car company bought a steel mill just so they could innovate in steel to make the cars lighter. Yeah. And, and you see stuff like going on with SpaceX, you know, insourcing everything because yes. the stuff out there just isn't good enough for what they were trying to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, this, this is also like, when I think about what is the nature of a city or nature of like, what causes it to be possible to do startups? It's like, yes. you have this ecosystem of capabilities around mm -hmm. where you have people who are experts, you have all the machines are just there, yeah. whether you, whether you can like purchase them or, or rent them or use them or whatever. Yep. Um, all the parts are around, like you can just go and ask the guy next door, like yeah, what yeah. he thinks about how he solved and, this problem. And like, this is so critical. Like people overlook this, like with a big company, they have enough capital to kind of insource a lot of somewhat, stuff. Yeah. But with the startups, you really need this in ecosystem to be yeah. able to do the innovative stuff. What's interesting is the best ecosystem for hardware on earth is Shenzhen. Right. And so I, before I started Plethora, I went over to Shenzhen and, you know, there's an area in downtown Shenzhen called Huachang Bay. Right. And, you know, that is the electronics market. It's a whole district of like 10 story buildings where you're just buying capacitors and motors and stuff. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and then, if you're building something, you just go out there and yeah. get the stuff. And you're like, hey, I need a million of these. We're like, cool. We have a warehouse on the outside of town. We'll like truck that to you today. I mean, it's, it's that kind right. of town. And, and there are people who are like, it's the depth of which there is expertise and like, you know, medical fasteners. Um, waterproofing, like just right. the, the people exist, you know, that's part of it. Mm -hmm. I would say that probably one thing that China benefits from, and I don't have data on this, but I just think it's true is that like more smart people go into manufacturing in China. Yeah. Um, I would say here it's, it's not been cool probably since yeah, like the no, 70s or 80s cool. yeah. um, to do that. And like when, you know, I know a lot of the people who are like the heads of these things and they're like from an older generation, I feel like they want to retire. Um, they were beat up by the outsourcing thing. Like a lot of people got beat up. There was like the high times of manufacturing, people made a bunch of money and then it was like the low times. Yeah. And I think they never really got over that. And so when you look at like, you know, even like, you know, so I was talking about the, um, the World Economic Forum actually, like, I don't know, maybe like last year and they had this whole thing in the fourth industrial revolution and it's yeah. driven by the, um, you know, their members, right? Which are, yeah. um, you know, big old companies who have a bunch of factories that are doing it the old way. And so, right. you know, the industry 4.0 stuff is, is basically like measure shit and tweak what you find, um, which right. is like kind of obvious um, and people are doing that already. So it's to me mostly hype. Right. But um, one of the things that was funny is, is that the manufacturers see it as just manufacturing, and that's actually the wrong view for innovation. Manufacturing has to be coupled with engineering. So like, if you think on the internet, we would never think about like, let's just think about it in data centers. Like it's all about the data centers, build giant yeah, data yeah, centers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like the engineers are directly on the metal of AWS. They're programming a terminal that is directly talking to the factory, right? Which is a data center. Um, so for me, the fact that it's frames manufacturing and their members make them frame it that way, because I was like, hey, like, where's the mechanical engineering or, or any of the like engineering side? And they're like, yeah, that's a good point. Like our members didn't ask for that. And I think this is actually part of the problem is like manufacturing. There isn't a lot of vision right now. It's like, what do you mean? We got fat, like, you know, like GE was like, oh yeah, we have machines from the fifties. don't even have computers. How do we even do this? Like, that's the kind of thing. It's like rearward looking, like, let's make the legacy stuff still work because I'm trying to get another 2%, you know, net income out of this thing. And, you know, like famously, I think it was Jamie Miller, who was the CFO, still is the CFO, was like, you know, 1% a year, you know, net income returns. And it's like, that's a, not an innovation yeah, kind no, of environment. Right? <laughs> yeah. And this, this gets me thinking of like the nature of more innovative stuff versus more established stuff so in the innovative stuff that you really have to be what you're saying is you have to be very holistic in yeah. the thing the engineer is designing like you know from 
because you have to find those bottlenecks, right? And the bottlenecks yeah. might be outside of your traditional little sphere. Yep. You have to have a very holistic view of like, all right, there, that's where the bottleneck is. We can fix that to get this part better. And it's like you, you build, um, you build the new thing by looking at like all of the inputs and all of the and processes. And you're on the line. Yeah. Like, and you're it's right hard to there. work for, it's hard to work for Apple because they are, they know this really well. And so you're always flying to China. To like basically tweak every little thing. Yeah, you've got to be there. And this is, and, and even like, you know, you fly to the factory, that's, that's, that's like pretty distant. You compare that to Skunk Works. Yeah. Know, like how, <laughs> how, how we had them. Yeah. It's like, okay, we've got a, we've got a hangar and the offices are in the hangar. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, the best way for sure. Yeah. And, and so, yes, yeah, so this is very, uh, integrated holistic process to, to be able to do new things, but that's also inefficient, right? In, in the long like once you once you have an established process that's inefficient and you like as a as an industry matures it kind of like breaks out into its individual components you've got like all right we now know how to do things now let's do each part well yeah they right? specialize after a while which should provide interfirm competition which you know will lead to better services yeah but but it 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 doesn't break the paradigm right it like optimizes the paradigm but it doesn't yeah, bring a new paradigm. Yep, yep. And and so that's I think the, the trap you're describing is like okay, you've got maturity of an industry, but it's mature within a particular paradigm. Mm -hmm. And these this like competition between service providers and like commodity service providers that doesn't provide paradigm innovation. Yeah, what provides paradigm innovation is the vertical integration and the totally. having the engineers right on the line. Totally. And, so on. and and so it occurs to me that that actually can't really be done without huge capital investment or, or otherwise some kind of big subsidy yep. uh, to, to make that work. And in China, they've got lots of capital investment and they do tricks with the currency to keep the yeah, wages yeah. low. <laughs> um, it, like even so they're building a lot of stuff and though, shipping it to everyone, the wages are not rising as fast as you might think. Though they are actually more than Mexico now in the coasts. Right. So if you look at it, like they're still like, you know, they still want standard of living increases, but yeah. like now China is now outsourcing to like Africa and like yeah, other yeah. Asian countries. Yeah. Um, yeah. To with do this, with right? Belt and Road and so on, which All we've talked about yes, before. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're trying to outsource, but, but they're, they are, my point is they are managing the problem from the perspective of like, all right, what is actually the, mm -hmm. the level of like innovation versus uh, optimization kind of. Yeah. Uh, and they're subsidizing it directly. Like you can yeah. actually get subsidies to put robots in your system now. And it's kind of funny to think about that for China, right. but like they want to see these productivity increases and they're actually lagging on robot deployment. Like right. I remember seeing numbers the other day that was like, basically South Korea has like four or five times a robot per industrial worker per capita than the United States. Right. And the United States is like maybe like two, three times China. And so it's like China's really far behind on robot deployment. So China's because very human heavy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which really kind of makes sense. They want to keep a lot of full employment and, and keep the people from the provinces being able to onboard to modern society. Like that all makes mm -hmm. sense to me. But um, but yeah, I think they're now like, okay, cool. Now switch gears and then throw yeah, robots yeah. and everything. You know? Yeah, well, and they, they do a lot of long-term planning. Like they're, they're thinking about, okay, we need, you know, we need to have a transition to a more service style economy yeah, yeah, in the future sure. or like people... People not just doing these like raw labor jobs as yeah, much, fully, yeah. And and so they're like, all right, well, this is actually going to change the shape of cities and so on. So they're building cities, yeah, like in anticipation of that yeah. kind of transition. <laughs> it's 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 crazy the kind of sort of forward looking stuff they're doing. On the other hand, of course, a lot of it like ends up being 
sort of misapplied and, and yeah. badly founded and, and like they build ghost cities that are essentially real estate I scams feel like that they're stuff. yeah totally and I feel like in some ways like China and uh, and maybe a joke way is almost like the biggest practitioner of MMT you know right. where it's like they're like oh that didn't work cool just write it off that's our own bank you know right. um, and so they just wasted a bunch of limestone and, and natural gas they dug out of the ground but like yeah, that's and, it and you know, in a sense. Yeah. yeah totally but they make the you know the food that they feed those people too so it's like in a sense like they've drawn their balance sheet down on mm-hmm. a like resources perspective but like they you kind of can in yeah. a sense so like I remember seeing recently that like they're solving for effectiveness not efficiency right now yeah and that's that's i think really what you do want to do like i remember this is one of these sort of abstract principles i've learned over the years is like raw throughput is often much more important than than like efficiency yeah um this is like the fat startup like people talk about lean in the beginning but actually at a certain point you have to go fat yeah and like you know first you're doing unscalable things quote unquote and then you figure out like how to throw money at engineers like zenefits tried to do this to like an explosive degree right right? and it blew up just because of some other issues but like sometimes it doesn't work yeah sometimes it doesn't work but i think that in a sense you kind of do want to do that and this is like what the blitzscaling thing is right in the startup world interesting yeah so you were saying like back to like what like you know U.S. policy what it is now and then maybe like where do we go with it industrially? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, where would you like to see it go? Like, it, like given I imagine you've thought about this a lot. Sure. Sure. Like, like thinking from a strategic perspective. Of yeah. Like, okay, we're in competition with China. Yeah. You know, we've got to think about how to keep yeah know, all our capabilities at least somewhat in house. Yeah. Well, there's you know, some we've fun got to keep stuff everyone here. fed, etc. Like, like what do you? How yeah. are you looking at this? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple things to say. What will happen? I mean, one, I think it's true that like so, it there's a weird thing in the long term where like once technology exists, yeah. then the question is like, well, how would you produce it? So say that China were to surpass us in yeah. 20 years in at least certain products. So they already, you know, maybe they already have 5G. Yeah. Um, if, if they have high speed trains, we don't have high speed trains. Yeah, exactly. Although I mean, we could build them now. We could build them theoretically. But, yeah, if we had the political will. Exactly. So I mean, we have we have like that. Certainly, like the 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 institutional and bureaucratic improvements we have to have certainly need to happen for any of this to really work. Yeah. But um, but let's assume that like we can get our shit together over the next couple decades. Which right. I don't know. I kind of feel like we are. Um, yeah. No, I, I I see a lot of people like not. I mean, I, I went into this, what we're doing here with Palladium yeah. from engineering because I realized yeah. that the big problems that we're facing as a society are on the human side yes. and not on the technology side. Yeah, fully. And, and, and yeah, so it's, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm working on that problem, but then I also meet other people who are looking at this. And I, so I am actually optimistic that, that yeah. we can sort these things out. Totally. So let's assume we can. Yeah. So like one thing is like, I'm interested in, um, first of all, like I, I fully believe in like, you know, if I was, you know, king of the United States or whatever, I'd be like yeah. totally increase more funding to DARPA, NSF. I would probably right. make NSF into like more of a competitive structure where like, it's like right now, I think how it works is there's like, okay, we're the people who study E. coli. There's a board of people. We approve all the grants. Right. There's not like three boards and you, and you look at what they did. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's not like venture capital funds where like the worst ones die, you know? Right. So I would like the NSF actually to have a lot more funding, but actually some kind of competition in the outcomes. This is actually what right. DARPA does really well. Competition between the, the rival grand, groups. The, yeah. Rival yeah, groups. Who are trying to achieve agencies. Yeah. And so like, you know, there are right now more like banks in how they think about it. It's like, okay, incremental steps on E. coli so yeah, you can yeah, show yeah. certain benefits. But like yeah. in the DARPA sense, 
they actually are like, you know, say the biotechnology office, I know that like what Justin was saying is like, okay, any of my program managers can just cut checks up to a certain amount and I just say, do it, pull the trigger, just do it. And so right. they're like angel team. investors, yeah. you know, they're like government angel investors. And then he's like, okay, this one's doing really good. That, that guy gets a higher limit or gets to stay longer or whatever. And so I love that kind of management. I would love to see like our funding ability at the top to fund fundamental R&D because that's where new companies are going to take that R&D. And yeah. it's like the CNC thing. It was the Air yeah. Force, then it turned into this great industry, eventually gets commoditized, and then who cares? But like, the, that's how the economy goes. And hopefully mm -hmm. along the way, you'll build other capabilities that build on those capabilities and you'll still have companies mm -hmm. or you know you don't want those companies and they leave. Like that's, so that's one thing, it's R&D. Yeah, and, thing, and if I can comment yeah, on that, yeah, so yeah. like one thing you need to like allocate a lot of money well is you need to find the people who have the good judgment who yeah. can just and like let them kind of do it unconstrained. Yeah. Like you can't just put together a, you know a committee of five PhDs like totally selected. Like they're not necessarily they're going to end up being too conservative. Totally. Need these like crazy sort of great man and characters. I, I agree. Yeah. And I think we need to figure out how to actually compensate them well and allow right. the crazy people to get into government in the first place. Like, yeah. And this, this is people who did this were nuts. A lot of them. Yeah. yeah. And, no, and this, this is, I think a really important thing is like you do at these, in these times where you're going to get this like massive growth in capability, you need these guys who are these big risk takers. You yeah. don't want the conservative people. Yeah. At least not all of them. Yeah. Let's have both. You need a bunch of conservative people to yeah. keep the yeah. critical stuff running. But, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. But, but to really get the innovation, you do a bunch of, of crazies. But there's, um, that reminds me of like Lee Kuan Yew's government in Singapore. Okay. They, would, they would pay bureaucrats, the top bureaucrats, like more, much more than the private sector. Yeah, it makes total sense. And it's so that like the, the, and they like, not just like on average, they're paid more, which is, which is sort of the case um, in a lot of Western countries now. But like, they would pay the top guys what they're actually worth. Yeah, cool. And which is a lot. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so that's that's an interesting thing that you kind of have to do. But but one thing I wanted to get into here a little bit is a lot of these like money allocation things are fundamentally like political patronage yeah, or like political fully. conflict mm -hmm, and so on. Surely. And so you have this interesting balance in society that you have to strike between productive competition and like destructive political competition yeah like so they are in fact going to be kind of representatives of different factions like fighting over yep, the, the yep. resources and allocating them and so on and you have to make sure like this is one of the big jobs of government actually mm -hmm. like especially the very top of government the big job is to make sure that all the fighting going on which there always is yeah is is over how to be better rather than how to like take the other guy's stuff destructively. Totally. So there's an interesting structure that actually is just coming out. So it, there was a thing issued maybe like two years ago called I-bonds. Mm -hmm. And so I'm also really into financial instruments and like new ones. So like one of the ones that I found was basically they wanted, this was one woman was like, she's blind mm -hmm. and a researcher and she somehow developed a bond that was basically chartering a, I think a nonprofit trust, I think. Mm -hmm. And then that trust was funded by a bond issue that was sh like only for this entire organization was just for I research. And so mm -hmm. there was a group of people who were the trustees who would allocate this research mm -hmm. and the bonds would pay out based on the success of that research. And the government was actually backstopping if it didn't work. So basically private investors partially fronted money and it's like, if any of these I things work and turn into companies, we get an upside. And the government's like, we'll get an upside too, but we'll also protect your downside to make market rate returns so investors actually want to put money into these bonds. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so this is one particular structure where it's like, it's sort of like um, a social impact bond was another structure like this. Mm-hmm. And what the social impact bond was is like, you know, for a very basic example, imagine you, um, you know, you wanted to vaccinate a bunch of kids in some country and you mm-hmm. wanted the market to like figure out how to get the cheapest way. And so you would issue these bonds and people would be able to say, oh, um, I'm the person who knows how to make vaccines. The government has money. And then there's this group of people who are poor who don't have vaccines. Let's clear this market. Mm-hmm. And so the government would say, okay, we'll pay for success. So we issue these bonds, and if you can actually do it cheaper than we say, then you get to keep all that money. Yeah, yeah. This, the this, auditing was hard, though. So yeah, like, that's, that's the trick, is, is like you have to be able to measure it well yeah, where it doesn't so, work. So in reacting to this hard audit problem of social impact bonds, they said, okay, maybe let's just say the auditing is almost impossible. So yeah. let's actually just say in the I-bond that like any wealth made, here's how we're going to allocate it and here's how we'll backstop it if, if we don't get enough wealth to make a market rate return. And then the investors would get the money. So it's almost like how can we encourage capital to come in um, you know, at a market rate? Just do something in this space. Like not, yeah. doesn't, like not auditing what it did necessarily That's except right. that it made money. It's like, well, capital won't invest if it's bullshit. So right. first of all, it's like, we don't know how they're doing it. They might have their own experts. We don't experts. Even necessarily like, know what they're doing. Yeah. So like, that's the thing is it's actually like, the, you don't have to audit, just make it a price model. So then yeah. that's what this thing does. And so then the government's just like, we're going to let you guys do your thing. We're, we're going to get a piece because we're taking some risk off the table for you. Yeah. And I think structures like that where they like actually chartered a trust to pursue, you know, mm. eye research, we could just repeat that on many different things. So then you avoid the political game because it's a, it's a, a pseudo private, but like yeah. public private partnership, but it's... You know, unless the trustees are the political issue here, but yeah. I don't think people would invest in it that way. Because like, if I'm due diligence thing as a big company, I'm not going to be like, oh, these are a bunch of sycophants. You yeah. know, um, so maybe there are institutions that could. Get yeah, and, and I think I think there are definitely a lot of such things, and you know, each each structure is going to kind of work in some limited, some limited exactly area, right. Yeah. Like that that only works when you can have certain types of characterization of the impact totally. or ter- characterization of what you're trying to do or like the space you're operating in and yeah. so on. Yeah. And then there's this, of course, larger issue where you can't always do that. And so someone at the totally, top of the government totally, yeah. has to like, just kind of do it on judgment yeah. at some point. Um, but so there's another, yeah, there's another piece of this policy that I think this is the most radical thing that I think, um, like in the space is Great. basically like, so um, there's nothing stopping the U.S. from changing how intellectual property works vis-a-vis our response to China. Right. So say the 5G thing. Like, we can reverse engineer that shit and make our own 5G based on theirs. What's stopping us from doing that? Like, oh, we don't like it. We just like, opened the chips and did it. So, like, that may actually be a thing where it's like, oh, you're not playing ball with us. We won't play ball with you. We'll just absorb all your good technology. And yeah. the question is, is like, okay, so what would prevent us from doing that? So circuit boards are easy. We have our own chip people. So, you know, maybe they have better semiconductor fabs ultimately. You know, they've got their six nanometer technology. And now we're doing, um, you know, intelligence community is acquiring shit in the same way theirs is doing it to us. Yeah. And maybe that's just the game. And like, there's another interesting thing, which is around how reverse engineering occurs. Mm-hmm. So we're actually like, to me, coming into a golden era of reverse engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, what we have now is the ability, like, you know, a lot of equations are one way. It's really mm-hmm. hard to develop something, but once you see it, like a drug, it's easy to copy. Right. And so, like, most things are that. Most, you know, most consumer electronics, there's not some secret sauce. It's like, if you opened up the Apple chip, you know, you poured nitric acid on it and looked at it, yeah. you'd be able to take that and make your own because it's just a bunch of arm cores and some glue, you know, yeah, if, you, yeah. if, you have, if you wanted to spend the money. Um, and even then, it's not actually that special, so no one does it, but... If you did have some nuclear reactor inside, it's pretty rare. Yeah. Um, the things that are nuclear reactors, though, you can reverse engineer them better as well. So, like, maybe we should actually be funding an entire apparatus technology of how to reverse engineer and just absorb all the best technology and take it ourselves. 
Um, yeah, so yeah. they're not playing within, you know, maybe the WTO, WTO 2 whatever. It's like, oh, cool. Like, we're just going to take your shit because, like, that's how the world works now. Um, you know, and maybe the people who are these open source components, like there's a, what, Against Intellectual Monopoly is like the book that like goes mm-hmm. over like all the issues with intellectual um, yeah. monopoly and property. Um, and maybe we want to actually support that system and undercut them from that way. Um, and Yeah, and that's, this is something where like um, you look at sort of patent law in the past and mm-hmm. during wars, like these, these eras of competition, it may, may or may not be a war, but during these eras Fully, of competition... Yeah. Uh, governments often find like the patents are actually really like the patents end up really locked up and they have to force a bunch of people yeah, to, there's a lot to, to give up the patents. Yep, totally. Like what happened in World War One with aviation? Hmm. Like all the different companies who held different parts of the interesting, puzzle, huh? Uh, to, for building airplanes. Yeah, and and so they were the, the government basically had to say like, all right, look, yeah. you guys are going to share the patents. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> um, yeah, and and these the like patents and the copyright and all this stuff ends up getting. Uh, gets a lot of like captured by by the industry fully, fully. to protect like monopoly interests. Unfortunately, um, yeah, and so like maybe some competition can spur spur reform there. There's a legal thing here, but there's also the technical thing of reverse engineering. So yeah. like, what's interesting is that like ML systems are great at figuring out what's going on. So for instance, like there are now, um, I believe Fraunhofer in Germany is working on CAT scanning technology that can get to a micron resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, fully 3D. So you could put like an iPhone in there and it would tell you the chipset, all the things in the circuit board. It actually has a spectral analysis that will tell you what the materials of it are. It's actually yeah. nearly yeah, a copy crazy. machine for reality. So like that right now it's like thousandths of an inch. So it's not quite detailed enough for everything. Yeah. Um, but if you take those fuzzy models that you get out of CAT scans and put them through an ML system, you would then have a CAD file fully. So yeah. like what I always thought of is like, you know, if you put that CAD file into like the, you know, plethora in its ultimate conception it would just make it right so it's almost like like you could actually do replicator yeah basically you have a copy machine for reality and that technology is like maybe 10 to 20 years away from maturity okay that's and crazy. if that's true it's like that any invention can just be reverse engineered instantly you know in a sense yeah. unless there's some super secret thing the only thing that goes back on is actually quantum shit because simulation technology uh, vis-a-vis like if you can take the nuclear reactor in the product because it's mm. got to be in something right yeah and you can figure out like Okay, like in effect, all hardware is open source because you get the thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so like you're able to open it up and figure that out, and then the simulator can actually guess and check, also using ML situations to do that. It's just simulators are gated on their computational complexity. So mm-hmm. a lot of people predict that like quantum systems will be able to solve these simulation things really well. You know, since you know mm-hmm. DNA and protein, and this is like the classic problems that you know like yeah. remember Rigetti Quantum I think talks a lot mm-hmm. about like protein folding. Um, and that may be actually technology of the future that are the most relevant are biotechnologies anyway, but even physical technologies, mm-hmm. um, you know, ML and quantum will help make the simulations faster and less, um, little power intensive, right? And this yeah, resource intensive, which will also drive, um, you know, reverse yeah, so, so let's, so anyway, anyway, that's, that's, a let's suppose thing. you could do like full reverse engineering, like yeah. you could copy anything that yeah. you could find, then the game, like the strategic advantage becomes not in the hardware itself that you manufacture, but in the hardware that you manufactured the hardware. And, and even beyond this. So, yeah, I agree with you. So that's the machine tool like thing. Like the, the factories. And yeah. The, the machine and tools. the tacit knowledge of how to set that up. Yeah. So let's circle that as like a big thing of like the people and machines tacit knowledge engine. Yeah. Like why China hasn't replicated Taiwan Semiconductor. Yeah. Even with infinite money to do so. Right. Because you know? they've got to build that brain over time. Yeah. So another funny thing is the adoption characteristics of the consumer culture of your society. So what's interesting is like China is actually like way like more into like buying shit. 
Like, it's like they're a newer rich country and a lot of people like went from like poverty to having something and they're like, cool, a cheap VR system that my friends will think is cool and breaks in the, like 10 days. Cool, it's still cool. And that actually lets people sell into markets in a more innovative way. Like there's a reason why the first like genetically modified baby was in China. Like, right. I think it's just more permissive in many ways. Yeah, and like I that wonder... adoption may actually increase their ability to make innovation in a consumer sense that will drive adoption. Right, because because the consumerism is this big subsidy on just like, can you deploy something? Yeah, yeah. And I think it might also just be like Western values as well. Like I think in some ways, like we, um, you know, in the States are, and maybe definitely in Europe, are maybe a little more snobbish in this way. Mm -hmm. Like we want the iPhone to be perfect. And, you know, if your phone breaks and it's cheap, then you're like considered a rube or something for being right, screwed. Right, right. Where in China, it's like, yeah, man, everyone's just buying this shit. It's like, cool, right? It's like, I feel like they're that's, a little bit more permissive. That's interesting. You know? <laughs> that's interesting. Of course, that's related to the, uh, the flip side of that is like the... Uh, is that word? What's that word? Like chabudo or something? Like good enough? Yeah, I don't know yeah, if I got the yeah. right word, but but uh, where they like, you know, you hear these horror stories of like tin cans instead of rebar and fullers, yeah, 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 concrete and stuff. And then the shanzai too, which is actually their like, I think it means like green mountain or something. And okay. basically, like, it's the culture of like uh, pirating. Where like right. people are like, you know, you just pay the guy to give you the design and he does it because that's like more than his annual salary, you right, know, right. to have like five yeah. grand or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you can, um, you know, then you can do all your own stuff using their technology. And it's like, that is pretty rampant, I think, over there. And, and sort of does lead to innovation in many ways. Yeah, and this is interesting. It's like, how, how strong do you actually want your IP totally. law regime to be? Like in China, they have gone with this model where like, people are just stealing IP from each other for certain stuff each other yeah all over the place so the startup ecosystem in China is like extremely cutthroat yeah for that reason um, whereas in the West we've kind of like we've got pretty strong protections there and so it leads to I guess a different set of problems like you can't do as big um, kind of private investment in technology without good IP law on the other hand they've got other mechanisms for doing that um, but without and, and but with strong IP law, um, you get these these sort of like uh, patent standoffs and stuff. Mm -hmm. where, like something could be possible, except no one can actually yeah get all the patents together to the, do it. It does seem though that the the major like you know Fang style big tech companies mm -hmm. um, are actually not patent gated. Like they're mm -hmm. actually more like. Um, fair use copyright gated like mm -hmm. you know one of the things i've always wondered is is like the, the real thing on facebook like i forget what the social network was a few years ago that they like re like removed off of it but it basically let you like copy all your shit and share all between all of them so your twitter and facebook everything were connected um, right yeah and, yeah, and they, they hated that yeah <laughs> twitter, like twitter and facebook's yeah tw twitter and facebook uh both changed their like api yeah interface to, to not allow that basically. and what's interesting though is that like you know in, in the uh, you know the fcc for phones kind of famously if you flip over a receiver phone it says this device must accept all interference and generate no interference and that's a very basic rule for how the phone has to operate. Yeah. But in an internet context, I've always thought that there should just be a rule that's like anything a human can do on this website, a machine is allowed to do on this website. So if I give my password to something and it sucks down all my friends and network and posts or whatever by just clicking everything, yeah. that's totally legal. And I think yeah. that alone would actually maybe increase the competition rate yeah. um, you know, without a lot of um, you know breaking the companies up or something, yeah, which, which might still be useful at some point. Um, I'd love to see more competition and more more like decentralization of some of these 
the big like rents basically like rent seeking yeah, companies in, totally. in social media and so on. It's funny that like China also has the opposite thing here. They actually like these, you know, Alibaba and WeChat and these things that are like super centralized because then they can regulate them more easily. Yeah, so well, they then also it's pick just the like, winners and that way, right. They pick the winners and then they send in some party men and they're like, all right, now you're going to play ball with the government. Yeah. Any yeah. company any sufficient size and, has a party person, I think. Yeah. And that would be something like, you know, in America we could, we could do that as well. And I thought like that's, that's a decent system. Now, I don't know. There's obviously ups and downs to it, but like you could imagine you have, you know, every company past a certain size has a more formal party office in, in the thing from the government. Because like right now, we, it's not like we don't have yeah, yeah, stuff of, like, that. like the, the companies play ball with the State Department and yeah, the, fully. the Department of Defense and like NSA. You know, <laughs> and, and the all the political factions and yeah, so on. Sure. Like they have to pick sides and play ball. Surely. Um, and that could all be a lot more like really one of the big central jobs of the state and society is to coordinate all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and right now it's, it's kind of a mess in America. Totally. Um, but yeah, you could imagine that all being much more formalized and, and more efficient. Um, but that, um, this kind of brings me back to something we mentioned earlier, like why couldn't we just start stealing technology yeah. as, as America and like borrowing <laughs> or yeah, I guess I guess it's like it can it can be copied. So technically, it's uh, yeah whatever. It's all framing. <laughs> it's it's folk technology. It's like yeah. folk music, right? <laughs> um, um, but like, you know, Trump tried to do some of this stuff in terms of like starting to play economic hardball with China. But yeah. of course, like big political problems there because he's trying to do all this other stuff. A lot of people don't like it. A lot yeah. of factions. And maybe the um, tools were like blunt and weren't the right tools. Like no one invented yeah. newer tools either. Yeah. Well, and, and part of the problem there is just like, there's no faction like coordinated and secure enough to, to actually like make the investments into like how you would do that and then have the ability to actually deploy that in government. Yeah. And so we kind of have this big mess on the, on the like government policy governance totally. angle. Yeah. And then the other thing is the the spy asymmetry. Like we have a massive spy gap with China. Yeah. Like they killed all the CIA people, and they have tons of people. Yeah. In, in America. Yeah, and I think that like there's something about authoritarian states that like you know especially ethno authoritarian states where it's yeah. like you know it's not like I mean I'm guessing you can get like you know white people to go to China and for some reason but like at a certain point. It's like the ethno yeah. thing actually is a weird thing where it's easier for them to find us than vice versa. And we're a permissive yeah. culture that just lets that work. Yeah. And um, so, so that's going to be one of the big challenges is like, okay, given the model that we're running on here, how do we actually like deal with the spy gap or something? I, mm -hmm. I do suspect actually there's going to be, um, like over the next few years, the, the kind of, um, like the, the competition between America and China is going to bleed down into like the cultural factions and the Cold War Two. And yeah, and it's like like, you know, in, in uh in World War Two we had uh obviously we had a big Japanese subpopulation in, in on the yeah, coast true, true. and so on. And we got into a war with them and like, you know, it, it becomes hard to tell what the loyalties are for everyone and unfortunately we had like they put them in, in the internment. Camps, of course, which, yeah, which, yeah. You know, was really bad basically for a lot of people. Um and I could see that kind of thing 
happening with people China. are already scared i mean you know when i was in pennsylvania and dated an asian girl from china and yeah. like we would go like she lived in the suburbs and she would get yelled at like you know taking our jobs or you know stuff like this yeah and well, it's there's, there's a university like, student you know yeah, well, there's, there's these like there's these like very working class concerns like yeah. taking our jobs etc um which like you know those are valid concerns but they're not bubbling up to the top levels right now whereas the national security concerns are yeah. going to be something that bubbles up well it already is right i mean yeah. you know i think that i mean i've run into CFIUS, which is like the financial thing of like chinese venture capital yeah. and what you can take or not but not even just the government stuff from CFIUS, but like yeah. there's also um you know when i have like vcs from china or something like this and i'm mm-hmm. like huh like i i'm like a little bit freaked out because i'm like hey like um, people ask like very specific questions. Yeah, are these guys VCs or spies? Yeah, <laughs> and like I don't know. Like sometimes I wonder. Like you know, it's like yeah, there's a lot of money in China. A lot of people know about manufacturing. So like yeah, totally. There's probably a lot of experts in China who would be great. Yeah. Um, and even if they were those people, who's to say that the government's like, oh, you like you know, you're gonna do this because you must, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, they um, call them up and they say, hey, yeah, the so like they couldn't even, this. yeah, they couldn't even say no, right? So it's not yeah, even like yeah, yeah. the most ethical people in the world, but like if your livelihood is at stake, you have yeah, to do it. Yeah, no. And that just, yeah, it's it's a really unfortunate thing. At least like the, you know, I think if we can get our shit together in the West as far as like, you know, and liberal democracies or whatever mm-hmm. in general, and we're able to get our institutions such that people look at us and they're like, yeah, that is actually the correct way of doing things. Yeah. And the, because uh, people, no one is voting for tyranny. Mm-hmm. No one actually wants tyranny. The only time you get like populist dictatorships are during like heavy duress times. Yeah. When everything's, you know? when everything's going really sour I and mean, people, people will take the tyranny over like the chaos basically. completely yeah that's the only time it happens yeah. where everyone else everyone's like of course we want self-rule yeah you know so yeah and then like, the question is like what does that look like is it working like you know i'm obviously i'm, I'm very interested in exploring alternative models like yeah into more technocratic or or even like aristocratic or like other forms of democracy or whatever like let's look at those yeah. things and, and let's think about them um another podcast <laughs> yeah. but um uh, you said something that I that I wanted to to follow up on. Um, uh, I've lost pre, my pre China. No, it was it was just in the last few sentences. Oh, there was something interesting. Um. <laughs> Sorry, I've just completely lost my train of thought. But um, maybe I'll get it back. Okay. Um, but but let's uh, let's see what else is there to. To discuss. Oh man, it's just it's bothering me because I, I had a really good question. <laughs> I'm trying to think if we can replay what it was. No, yeah. Um, so we were talking about the, the spy issue, the symmetry, the institution stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'll drop it. <laughs> we might we might come back. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Um, but yeah, like like this. There's a lot of these sort of scary kind of possibilities yeah. on on the horizon with like how how the the competition with China ends up playing out um, industrially and so on. So yeah, you had you had some good ideas in terms of like how to how to kick the innovation into gear. Um, and then the challenge with the innovation of course is just like how do you actually hold on to it and maintain an advantage mm-hmm. and not just not just having yeah. it overseas immediately. And ultimately, what's interesting, though, is that, like, it's really the deployment of technology that actually affects people's livelihoods. So I think we, yeah. we have to always view things through what are the material conditions of the people on the ground. 
Right. So like everyone in Europe has cell phones because we invented all of that stuff. Yeah. So like, you know, like we invented GPS, the chips, mm. everything. So like the whole world can have this stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, we don't even have like the better versions of this thing necessarily. Like, yeah, maybe we all have the same, you know, iPhones or whatever. Mm. Um, but, uh, but we did invest a lot to do that and we do get to reap a lot of money because Apple mm -hmm. pulls in money from all over the world. So great. Yeah. Um, but even if we didn't have all the money in the world from Apple, we could still buy iPhones and it's a massive productivity increase. So the question really is from a company or a country point of view is like, how do we take any good shit in the world and then deploy it in our country? Yeah. So that, that's where it's like, whether we develop it, they're developing it and we take it and make it here. Like this is a question of how the material get transformed. Mm -hmm. um, and then so from that perspective, like I almost think that culture matters more than anything and like culture almost in like a business sense mm -hmm. so like in a business we talk about organizational culture we say the culture eats strategy for breakfast right that's a thing that they say because right. it's like the um you know the way you work on these things uh -huh. is actually how the thing will will work in your society so yeah. like you know North Korea can buy iPhones, but the thing doesn't work that well because of their cultural and institutional issues. Yeah, yeah. And um, this is, like, you know, you mentioned bringing, bringing Westerners over to China. Like, one of the reasons that happens is in the nuclear, nuclear power plants, the Germans have people who will obey orders to the letter <laughs> and, and, like, actually be precise enough in their activities and their culture yeah. to operate a nuclear power plant. Hmm. And they keep having trouble with this, with the, the Chinese thing with the, like, where the contractors will put tin cans in the walls. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Like, there's, it's just this cultural difference that they're having trouble with. Um, but, like, yeah, so the, the, this, this problem of the culture of your your country in, in business and other things yeah. like how do you um, how do you manage those things how do you maintain them um, in, in a good direction so that yeah. you actually have like you're sharing the things that you need to be sharing yeah. and not sharing the things and, you don't want to be sharing and this is you know to a point earlier I made like when I talk to the people in the industry there is not much of a like young guard in manufacturing who is like yeah. ascendant so like when I look at things it's like so my friends you know I think I know everyone who has a young startup or even a, you know, big company, but like a tech company. Yeah. And I almost see like the Silicon Valley's culture, business culture is kind of eating the world of business. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, it was just on the internet now, you know, with Uber and all these you know, Airbnb, it's actually just eating everything. And yeah. so like, if you look at, there's something that shows that like, um, businesses, when you ask big businesses what they fear the most, it's like disruption by new tech entrants. Mm -hmm. So like everything is just how do we get disrupted by these new kids? Yeah. And so what that means is like they're trying to get, you know, like famously like Eric Ries goes to GE and tells them about lean startup stuff. And now he just came up with a book maybe a year ago that was like, mm -hmm. how do you do entrepreneurship to bring this culture into your company? So we're basically like exporting Silicon Valley culture everywhere. And yeah. I think it's interesting to think of it as like a cultural export because now like every city in the world has a startup incubator, an angel scene. They're all reading Hacker News and TechCrunch every day. Yeah. It's actually a global culture. I wonder how much of that is like, it's Silicon Valley culture versus this is just how young people operate these days and you just need to bring in young people. I, I see. I don't think it's just young people because okay. I, I actually think of it as like, so this is like a, a you know, a little off topic, but like I see, you know, there was this Atlanticism, Atlanticism was a thing that like the East Coast of the United States and Western Europe right. were like in this special bond together, the Washington Consensus, all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I actually feel like that we're seeing more of a Pacific movement in thought where it's like yeah. the innovative people are in like, Asia and California and everything like this, like that's actually where a lot of the innovations happening in the world, like where all the yeah, new products and services coming from, they're in the Pacific now. And mm -hmm. I think that like people like New York, London, Berlin are actually old school in many ways. Yeah. And those young people are pessimistic 
hipsters, basically. And like right. hipsterism is basically like, we don't know what the future will be, so let's dress like the 20s and 30s or in 50s. Right. Where like that was like a classic time, let's do artisan things because we hate capitalism and industry and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. automation and technology. And so like to me, that is not a young person thing. Like, mm-hmm. that, I mean, that, that is a young person thing, but it's not an optimistic thing. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, and I've, I've thought about this before in the context of the succession problem. Yeah, like, sure. Like, you have these big old companies with a lot of older people in them, and they're mm-hmm. not sort of able to bring in the young talent. Yeah. Um, and then you have these these startups that are basically, like, rooting around that whole power center yeah. um, that are full of young people. And it's like, it, it almost feels like something's gone wrong. Like, I don't know if this is the right condition for things to be in, or if it's like something has gone wrong that, like we somehow didn't manage to get into the big established places that had a lot of institutional knowledge and then like yeah. do our thing there. It's interesting too. I mean, when, when I look at this, I, I think a lot of times, um, you know, one of my friends, um, he is from the Mondragon co-ops. So if you've ever seen this, it's the biggest co-op federation in the world. It's 75,000 um, people in like 260 co-ops called Mondragon. Mm-hmm. And so he was talking about like, Nick, you know, the co-ops actually can outcompete um, traditional businesses and whatever. I'm like, interesting. So like, I don't believe that's true, but yeah. if you really do believe that's true, you should start a private equity company and you should acquire a company, turn it into a co-op and you'd actually be able to make money right. and like scale that. You'd be able to infinitely scale it. So if you yeah, know yeah. some knowledge, the question is like how you deploy it. So mm-hmm. it could be that you're like, yeah, let's buy GE and let's like fire all the management at the top. Let's split up and you know, like you could do anything you wanted in private equity and do this if you actually thought you knew something that was real. And, and you could convince enough people to put together the capital to buy GE. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it wouldn't be that bad. I mean, if you really, so this is the thing, it's not believable, which is why you can't do that. Right, yeah. Like you people fully believe like in the 90s PE where you could like, you know, go in there, fire people, do some synergy stuff, roll them up together and like, right. and, and you could get another you know, lever it up and you'd get like 50% out. Yeah. You know, that was a standard PE model people believed in. And I think that like a lot of the stuff that you do, you do the, the, um, like both of these together and you're like, okay, you could buy GE or you could start 20 startups that fully obviate the need for GE, which right. is cheaper and less risky, probably the startups. Mm-hmm. And so like at that point, it's like, why do we even need GE? So their tacit knowledge can the startups just learn that or hire those people? Because right. corporations are not monolithic things. They're actually just pieces of paper that coordinate people together. And that tacit knowledge that all those people organize together, you they can divest those business units out. Or right. you can hire whole teams. Right. So I like, guess the, you know, the question then is basically like, how much do you need um, kind of like new structures and new forms and, mm-hmm. and new strategies in, in the in the market overall versus just new people. Yeah. And, and, and that like whether that, whether that trade-off goes one way or the other capital, sort of decides where the people go. I think that novel capital intensity is actually a big thing here. So what are the big old companies? Mm-hmm. So like novel stuff would be like the Boeing Everett facility. They're mm-hmm. giant manufacturing things. So the, you cannot make a 747 without the tooling. Right. Right. And so like, even if you hired the entire damn team, you still could not get the tooling or any of the IP, which is basically crystallized inside of Boeing. So Boeing will exist forever, you know, for for forever. As long as you need those big kind of things. Exactly. And like, you know, as opposed to capital intensive things like say farms, where it's basically like commodity, it's like commodity land, international harvester, whoever's buying your CapEx from. And you could just be like, yeah, let's start our own ADM today. 
yeah. and it would be no different. So it's a total commodity management thing, and maybe they just have land cheaply, and that's the entire point of ADM. You know, yeah. whereas like um, you know, say like um, a steel mill of a particular kind is like capex specifically made, and the people specifically trained. That's really hard to compete with. You know, right. so I think in a sense, a lot of these things are actually not um, like the tacit knowledge is acquirable because it's in the people. Yeah, so tacit not, knowledge that's in people. Yeah, but some tacit knowledge in effect is crystallized in physical things. Yes, um, and, or maybe even code bases, mm-hmm. which are very hard. Yeah, this particular thing is, and like these particular people are only valuable. Attached or, or like to that have, thing. Yeah, attached yeah. to that thing. Yeah. Or like have the most value attached to that thing. Exactly. And thus, that thing stays uh, exactly. as, as the, the center. Yeah. And that's why you acquire those companies. So that's when the PE model works. Yeah. It's like, oh, we think that steel mill actually should be run differently. So we're going to acquire that really fancy mm-hmm. team and technology, blow away the dumb management team, have our own sales channels that are different. You know, you can iterate mm-hmm. around that core tacit assemblage of people and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, tooling or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so this, I mean, this brings us back actually to part of your diagnosis of like what happened in the 70s and 80s with the, with the machine tooling was you kind of had the thesis that, that those activities were viewed as like unprofitable or they were unprofitable. Yeah. And so they yeah. actually got cut. Yep. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's interesting to think if that was, it was probably the right business decision for those companies. Like in many ways, like, you know, there's yeah. these big tool companies, they're trying to be profitable. So they do divestitures to get cash mm-hmm. and, you know, and maybe those things just die, you know, some of them just yeah. really die. Yeah. The right, the right idea for the companies. And then I guess like there's, there's also this larger question of like, is this the right thing for America? Yeah. What is it? Was it the right thing to have the landscape and incentives set up that they would do that? Yeah. And we lost the human capital, like these assemblages in a sense, yeah. likely that could have produced other things. Yeah. And we do see a pretty high conservatism in machine tools. And like, I have a bunch of ideas for how to reinvent various kinds of machine tools. Awesome. Um, but you know, to other, other, other startups, right. Yeah. But, um, but you know, I think that they weren't happening because it's, it's so hard to make these things. There's no investor appetite for even today. Like, you know, in the beginning, everyone thought it was crazy to raise money for a factory and people hated the factory right. and only after many years of me actually having to do it and succeeding at it, were right. they actually able to do it. But, um, yeah, and this is, this is really, uh, one of the big ways in which cultures and countries get stuck in, in believing that something or like in, in not being able to do something is like people don't believe in it. Yeah. Like, like just ambiently people don't believe in it. So the most talented people won't work on it. Yeah, exactly. The, the biggest capital won't go into it, etc. Like, and, and yeah, like so much of it just comes down to like, can you get that crazy guy who yeah. makes that investment of time and money to start the thing off, prove it enough that, that it can start to become self-sustaining yeah. and prove it to other people. And society needs to be optimistic as a whole yeah. to actually believe that it's cool to elect these people, right? I mean, yeah. to me, like, there's this link between, like, so I think the material conditions of a society, so say, like, China, yeah. their generations are said to be, like, five years, not 25 years, because right. the difference in lifestyle is so high because they're right. in the middle of the S-curve. Yeah. So, like, when you see that, it's a lot easier to think that it'll just keep going. And then now we're at some, like, you know, the, the, the West is at, like, the peak of the development curve and we don't know where yeah. we're going it's very like you know three percent growth or something at the best yeah. and so it's harder to think these things will pay off so you don't make these long-term investments because you're really scarcity minded yeah. and conservative and I, I wonder though that like in these in these environments where everyone's really scarcely scarcity mindset and conservative you can get people restarting the growth by if you're thinking on a longer time scale you can like out compete mm-hmm. that that um that more conservative mindset. Yeah. And that's what venture capital and did. That, and that's right? how it, that's how it gets 
yeah. kicked up again. Totally. And like the government ossified and didn't do as good at venture capital as it could have. But even though there was a lot of good things, but we yeah. could make it better. The venture capital guys have 10 year fund horizons mm -hmm. and that's better than Wall Street that has like, you know, HFT style, yeah. like trade the public yeah. equities, yeah. you know, or nanosecond fund horizon. Yeah. Or maybe private <laughs> equity of a two or three year fund horizon, you know? So like there are um, longer fund horizons and that's where all the money was made. Like the modern economy was only there because we actually got a good venture community yeah, to yeah. do that, you know? Yeah, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm thinking back now to like some uh, some report that I saw a few years ago where some big investor people were expecting in over the next couple of decades like a bull market in politics, like that there was gonna be interesting huh? like a bunch of things blown open in such a way that like Whoa. smart people were gonna start going into politics again, hmm. and I think we are seeing yeah. the, the beginning of that where totally. people are going and not and not politics in the narrow sense of like elections and stuff, but yeah. the larger sense of the big human institutions, yep, the big yep. central human institutions totally. of society. Totally. And and I think that's like, that's how we get out of like coming off the top of that S curve. Mm -hmm. It's like how we get out of that back into growth is you have to, like the bottleneck in many ways now is those big human institutions Yeah. Um, at the center. And and so like, you know, that's what I'm interested in. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I'm with you. Anyways, um, it's been an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> Let's cut this off. This yes, has been yes. awesome. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, this was a great conversation. I hope the audience learned something. I definitely learned some stuff. So, um, yeah, so again, uh, for the audience, this is Nick Pinkston, founder of Plethora, and hopefully many more great projects in the future. And, and I'm Wolf Tybee, editor of Palladium. And that's all for now. See you next time. All right. Thank you. Thank you.